with it? Some chicken tea. Chicken tea? Yeah. Yum. I have delicious espresso and um, condensed milk. Oh, classic Vietnamese Indian drink. Vietnamese style. Because you have to go play physical activity in That's what two I hours. play. I play physical activity. Hockey. Maybe that can be the intro. Okay. Well, let's not think too much into these sure. things. Look, we're already doing the podcast. Whoa. This is the podcast. Good job. And since this is the podcast, welcome everyone to an episode of I Love This, You Should Too. We are members of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is locally grown and community supported. And we are... Um, unprepared yeah i just realized we did not open ad documents we don't know what's going on today we haven't recorded in about a month i know for you out there seamless right we're here every week but we recorded a bunch of things early and we've taken a lot of time off and now we're doing it last (laughs) minute because this has to come out right away yes it's what, 8.30 at night? I'm having espresso because I still have to play hockey tonight after this. That's wild. And you're having a nice chicken broth. Oh, I didn't even do our names. I'm very out of practice. Oh. Well, I guess I'm <laughs> Indie Double Espresso Randawa, and with me, as always, is my lovely co-host, Samantha Chicken Tea Randawa. I'm also um, so ready for bed that I'm wearing like a full fleece onesie. But that's not uncommon for you. (laughs) I have been wearing it all day, actually. So today we are going to be talking about the 1954 Akira Kurosawa classic Seven Samurai, in case this is somehow your first episode, which I guess it it could be. It could be. I think we picked up a lot of people, oddly enough, on Cheer or Die. Really? I think so. Huh. That's interesting that that was like one that everyone got really into. Well, we so rarely do things that are new and topical. True. And uh, since it's my (laughs) turn, I, of course, went against that. And I picked this movie, which Samantha had never seen. So we're going to get into it. We're going to break it down. I'll probably get too into it, as I usually do. Yes. And it is going to be filled with spoilers but you know what it's like a 60 some year old movie it's from 1954 how many years is that a lot (laughs) (laughs) that's true it is a lot like 68 is Is that right i'm not i'm not a math person i'm gonna say confidently 68 years ago this movie came out people are out there right now yelling at their i don't know stereos car stereos saying that that's clearly not right but okay whatever no 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 how old are you if you were born in 1954 68 So before we launch into Samurai Talk, uh, we are sponsored by the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how these endowment funds intersect with the community. You can subscribe wherever you're listening to our podcast or at thewellendowedpodcast.com. So I had seen Seven Samurai probably when I was 18, maybe even 17 in my first year of university when I started taking film studies, because this is kind of the um, the introduction to world cinema. Mm. This is a staple of that class, and rightfully so, I think. 
but this is your first watching ever. Mm-hmm. Samantha, what'd you think? You know what we never do? What? I used to always say, and I love this movie. Do you? Because that's, you know, you know yeah, the, the title like, of this uh, Oh, yeah, like the podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be more confident. Okay, great. I love this movie. Samantha, do you? No. What? Why not? Why? Are you... Tell everyone why you're wrong. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, getting aggressive. <laughs> I don't think I want to now. <laughs> the original title of this podcast was Here's Why You're Wrong. Yes, it is. So you tell me and then I'll tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> okay, great. Just like always. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying that you have more film knowledge than I do. Or are you admitting you're wrong more often than I am? No. You do oftentimes go like, you know what? Okay, I, I was wrong. It's it's great. I love it. Okay, that happens well, a lot. Maybe you can convince me of that. I don't think I'm going to be able to in this one. This but. movie was fine. Okay. It was um, subtitled. It was in black and white. And it was very slow. And those are three things that you know that I am not a huge fan of. I will only grant you two of those. What? I don't think it's that slow. Mm pretty slow <laughs> i think that this movie we might think of it as like oh it's this old japanese art house movie and it's gonna be real tough this is a blockbuster movie this is an action movie this is a straightforward let's get the gang together and let's cut a bunch of people up with swords movie mm. this is a straightforward action movie and i think the runtime is justified because i don't think there's anything to cut out that would that wouldn't take away from the overall product i feel like we could tighten up a few of those scenes like what like every time they're looking out into a meadow you need those meadows <laughs> you're going to cut the meadows yeah. come on first of all not meadows they're fields okay the fields that are kind of the impetus for this entire movie. They are willing to sacrifice their lives for those fields. I think the fields deserve a shot or two. Or ten minutes. Oh, that, <laughs> now you're straight up lying. That doesn't happen. This movie is pretty tight. Of course, it doesn't go as quick as the editing of the what we've gotten to over the last 68 years. Mm. But it gives things... A chance to breathe. And so to have a movie with seven characters, actually probably like 10 characters, that are distinct and pretty well rounded out, Mm -hmm. and then going into a big action sequence with them. It took the Marvel movies, what, 14 movies to do that. True. This did it in three hours. True. That's economic storytelling right there. (laughs) I still think it could have been a little faster. Yeah, yeah, maybe. That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) But I'm not saying I hated it. Okay. I enjoyed what it was. I thought it was really great to look at. I thought it would be way better in color. Um, That's probably true. Like, just because, like, there were some really nice, like, sweeping landscapes. Of I Japan. think a lot of Kurosawa, some movies are great in black and white, and uh, I would think you should never colorize it. Mm-hmm. I think Seven Samurai would probably be improved if he, if it's still him making it, but mm-hmm. him making it in color. I could see that. I just think that there's so much beauty and, like, depth that we're missing. 
yes. from this because it's not in color and i feel like because like japanese fabrics were beautiful yeah there would have been a lot of bright colors on this the like flags the just the tone and depth of like f- the fields and people are wearing forest. floral print in this. exactly there was a couple at. times where i was like man i really wish i knew what color that was because that is a really great print yeah and like what if it was like red and purple or something like and this movie is also heavily textured there's Mm -hmm. so many textures and layers to each frame that sometimes that gets muddled in black and white because we have all of these textures and there's just there's so much without the contrast of different colors Mm -hmm. i i I see that yeah and there's like one other piece like the i feel like the costuming would have been given a leg up i guess if um we could see the difference in colors like it wasn't all grayscale like there's that one scene where we said i'm pretty sure she's wearing leggings but it's like really hard to tell if she's just wearing like a a mini dress and her legs are dirty (laughs) right so there's like aspects like that where i feel like the wardrobe wasn't appreciated as much as it could have been because you can't see the colors or the textures so what you're saying is that next week we should just do Ron, his uh, one of his best color movies? No. Oh. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about this movie. Maybe I'll give a quick little intro on the influence of this movie and Akira Kurosawa in, I don't know, probably put it in like Western terms of mm-hmm. like, here's what movies we got out of this. I'll try to make that as quick as possible. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the production Then we can get into the plot and characters, some formal aspects, like how he composes his frames. And at the end, I'll probably ramble a bit because just today I started thinking about this movie and when it was released. Mm. Because I kept thinking about this as a product of the time that takes place in the movie. Oh, like 1586. Yes. I kept thinking <laughs> about the, that part of history. Right. And I don't know much about that. I know very little. But I was focused on that. And then I forgot, well, this probably says just as much about the time it was made as the time that it is reflecting. So I have a lot of thoughts on that. I haven't really quite uh, crystallized those yet because we are so unprepared today. But you know how I go. I'll just do a big soliloquy and tie this all into World War II. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the poster for a second? Which poster? The uh, I'm looking at Wikipedia right now. I'm turning my screen around so Indy can see it. Yes. It's epic. Yes, it is. That is an epic poster. Great in color, huh? Yeah, so good in color. <laughs> so this poster is the original one with Toshiro Mifune um, scantily clad, but still wearing his armor and holding his sword in the air. Yeah. It's a good poster. It is. And it just, it has like everybody's faces on it. Oh, actually, you all will see this if you follow us on social media. It'll come out on Monday yeah. when this podcast comes out. Perfect. Look at our Instagram. You'll see the poster. So this movie Of course, a lot of these older ones, they're in there not just because I think they're good and fun to watch and beautiful, but a lot of their importance is the influence they've had on other movies. Seven Samurai is one of probably the top five most remade or stolen from or borrowed from movies Mm -hmm. in history. There are so many homages paid to it. It did many things for the first time ever. This might be the first instance ever in an action movie where we meet a character 
who is involved in a different action sequence does something badass and then they're like, okay, you're the guy. <laughs> this might be the first time that ever happened. Hmm. This might be the first time someone ever went out to get a group of people, put the team together, and then they're out there for one common goal. Yeah, I love the this is the origin of like a ragtag crew of misfits. Yeah, this is uh, <laughs> The Dirty Dozen, Ocean's Eleven, Avengers. A Bug's Life is a straight up remake of this. Uh-huh. I don't know. If, have you seen A Bug's Life? I think I saw it when it came out, like when I was a child. It's just this movie. Oh. Uh, Magnificent Seven, of course, is a more straight up remake. Of course, we would get similar movies. Avengers would come around sooner or later. Mm-hmm. But this kind of laid the groundwork for all of that. That's so cool. And then Kurosawa's other movies like um, Yojimbo and I guess what's the sequel, Senjuro? Those were essentially remade into Sergio Leone's Clint Eastwood um, spaghetti westerns. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hidden Fortress is pretty much Star Wars. Oh. And Jedi, of course, are just samurai. Right. And George Lucas isn't like hiding that. He said, yeah, I took all this from Kurosawa. That's where it came from. Darth Vader's helmet is a samurai helmet. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, so I was thinking about that when we saw the, um, the like, the raiders, the bandits. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking that their helmets looked a little bit stormtrooper-y. Yeah, yeah. Vice versa. Stormtroopers took it from them. Yeah. And this movie was heavily... Influenced by Westerns, by John Ford specifically, who made a lot of big Westerns before this came out. And then in turn, this movie influenced a whole generation of Westerns that followed it. So it's kind of a a nice cycle that way. And in Japan, people didn't always love Kurosawa. They said he was too, like, too American, too Western. They're like, this is just a cowboy movie. What are you doing here? So there were mixed reactions to Seven Samurai when it came out. And this one is kind of an interesting part in his career because his earlier stuff is very, there must be a better word than Japanese, but it's very Japanese. It's very traditionally Japanese. Japanese. It's about uh, the virtues of teamwork, fitting in, uh, conforming to an established society. But this is the turning point, and his movies after this tend to be about misfits and rebels and people who are going against the established norms. And I think this movie has a good bit of both. So it's a really interesting part in his career. When he was making this, it went way over budget (laughs) and took way too long right away. When the movie is supposed to be wrapping, they were about done a quarter of it and they'd gone through the budget already. Oh, wow. So there were multiple instances where the production company shut everything down And Kurosawa knew, though, that they're in too far. They need me to finish this. So whenever they'd shut down, he'd just go fishing and wait for them to call him back. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that happened like three times. But it took so long that this was supposed to be shot in the summer, and they ended up shooting right through winter. And the ground froze a bunch of times. So they brought in these rain machines to like wet the ground and thaw it. So when in the big climactic showdown, when they're all trudging through that mud, it's very, very cold. People got frostbite. I hear Kurosawa's toenails fell off. (laughs) Because he's, and they're all wearing the period appropriate clothing. So they're wearing Mm -hmm. these tiny sandals and not much else. Some of them just looked like cloth. Like it was just there was nothing underneath it. That is true. And Ooh. Toshiro Mufune wearing even less than that. He has his bare ass this whole movie. He does. He can rock an outfit. 
Oh, he can. And I liked that he scavenged through and changed his outfit throughout the movie. Whatever he could find. Yeah, I I liked him. He was funny. Well, maybe let's uh, segue into characters then. Sure. We can talk about him first, since we just were. So Toshiro Mifune plays Kokuchio. Or, as I put him in my notes, the shouty guy who scavenges. That That's him. <laughs> Could you say uh, Toshiro Mifune in your best Toshiro Mifune impression? Toshiro Mifune! Is that, Is that how good? he sounds? I don't know. Oh. He was just like super shouty. Oh, I, I was thought he was show. more of a Toshiro Mifune. Oh, yeah. So you do a better summary than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I've also seen more of his other movies. Uh, and I, I, I love that guy. Uh, this role was not in the original script. He was going to play one of the other characters, and they felt like this needed something else. So they wrote this whole new character, and I think he really brings the movie together. And he's a very important link between the farmer world and the samurai world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was fun. He um, kind of brought the levity in some scenes. Yeah, he's comedic relief. But then he also delivers probably the most dramatic speech in the whole movie yes. as well. So he plays both sides of it. When we meet him, he has this sword that's way too big for him. He's very monkey-like. Mm-hmm. And he's clearly overcompensating with this giant sword <laughs> and like picking fights with yeah. everyone. And as the movie unfolds, we learn what he's overcompensating for. He's a, a surprisingly complex character, I think. He hates all of the farmers, and he hates the bandits, and he also kind of hates the samurai. <laughs> he hates everybody. <laughs> and we learn later on that it's because of his upbringing, and he is actually the child of farmers, and his parents were killed possibly by bandits, possibly by samurai. And he's kind of become, he's he's had enough with the life he yeah. has led, and he wants to do what he can to get out of it. So he goes around and um, takes on too much responsibility, overcompensates, is very overconfident, and that's him trying to get out of the, um, the role that society has imposed upon him. Hmm. And we know that Kurosawa loved Shakespeare because he has remade at least two Shakespeare plays that I know of. Uh, Throne of Blood is based on Macbeth, and Ron is King Lear. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Cacuccio is in the line of, uh, like, your Falstaffs and Shakespeare's fools. Mm -hmm. And if you're not familiar with the how the fool character usually works, they would often be someone who is mostly silly and for comedic relief, but then they would be able to deliver a lot of biting criticism on the status quo mm -hmm. or the royal family and give insights into the real world. And I think all of that really applies to Cacuccio's character. Yeah, I, I like that parallel of him kind of being the fool. Do you think he overacts in this movie? Yes. What if it's not him overacting, but his character? Because his character is playing the role of a samurai. Mm -hmm. He's this poor farmer who sees these samurai as being like brash and impulsive and courageous. And in his very immature mind, this is what it amounts to. Yeah, I mean, his character, it's he seems larger than life. So I think it's like the amount of acting he does is great. Um, but I think if he were anybody else in this movie, that wouldn't have been... Like, appropriate, I guess. Right. Is the word. <laughs> He's a fool. He's a fool. <laughs> Did you have another character you liked a lot? I liked the young guy. 
Katsushiro. So he is a、uh, the young kind of apprentice to Kanbei,、mm-hmm. and he is. It looks clearly that he's from a noble family and is a he's a rich kid. Yeah, and he was born into the samurai life, and he strives for it too. But he is going about it, I guess, in a more traditional way than Kokuchio. He's not、mm-hmm. just saying, "Hey, look, I'm a samurai. I got all these things." He's trying to train. He's trying to、yeah. associate with the people that he admires. And I liked that, yeah, because he's like clearly I don't know everything, and he's the son of a samurai, right? I believe is that how、so. that works. I'm not sure if it's said, but I what I took away because of how he's dressed and everything,、mm-hmm. he's clearly from a noble line, and I would right, guess because he was like samurai, fancier and cleaner than everyone else. Yes, yeah. So I liked him. He seemed like he. Like yeah, he wanted to follow the ancient ways of being a samurai, and go find a samurai to study under. And he just happened to get kind of wrapped up into this whole thing. And、um, yeah, I thought he was very like honorable and noble. Yeah, he's kind of the antithesis of Kakuchio a lot because、mm-hmm. he has these times when he sees somebody.、Uh, Do something impressive. He goes and tells them, like, "Wow, you are a magnificent person," <laughs> which is not something Kakuchio would ever do. No, and I, I liked his, like, he was kind of quiet. He was always watching,、mm-hmm. and he was always like taking it in, and he was always trying to learn from the other samurai. And I mean, what a great crash course for him then that he lucked into having like six mentors、yeah. <laughs> instead of just one. And I also like that they brought in a romance element.、Mm-hmm. A lot of the times, I feel like that can be tacked on just to say, like, "Hey, look, it's romance too." But it felt very in line with his character、yeah. because he's he's a young kid. He sees a pretty girl. That、yes. makes sense.、Um, I didn't like the daughter. She like I don't the way she spoke really bothered me. What do you mean? It was like very screechy. Okay, like her actual voice. Yeah. Okay. Like I didn't like that, and it just kind of turned me off to her character. I think if the actor had been a little less screechy, it would have been different for me. But I liked that there was a little bit of a love story in like a like a dangerous situation. I did like the romance quite a bit because it isn't just the romance, but it. Goes on to strengthen a few things that the movie already had, like these differences between roles and、um, and one status between the farmer and the samurai,、mm-hmm. because it's it's forbidden, and the people of the village fear the samurai are going to just steal all the women and、mm-hmm. and rape them presumably. Yeah, and we'll probably talk about that more when we get into the societal stuff, but that is a.、Uh, Forbidden love is a good background for for a lot of movies, right? Yeah, and it felt like they both meant it. I believed them. Yeah, it seemed. I guess it wasn't played up for the movie. It seemed like something that could happen、mm-hmm. in this scenario. It wasn't overly dramatic.、Yeah. It seemed. I what do we know about realism of the fifteen hundreds? But to me, it seemed realistic. Yeah, and I can see how it's like would be forbidden. Because he's just like some guy that they don't really know、um, in the village, and like honor, I'm sure was a big thing back then for women,、mm-hmm. and, like keeping yourself for marriage. But、um, I think it was very true of what teenagers would be like, yeah, or teenagers are like. 
Yeah, I think the status difference between them is a big part of it as well, not just that, mm-hmm. but also because it becomes clear that Katsushiro can't stay and marry her. Right. Which he may very well want to. And at the end of the movie, I believe he wants to stay. I think he does, yeah. And when she just kind of walks on by, I think that kind of breaks his heart. The The ending of this movie was... I, I loved the ending. Like the last few minutes. Yeah. But we'll talk about that later. Another character, maybe the lead, although it's arguable with Kikuchio, is Kambe. How did you like him? He is kind of the leader, I guess we could say. Yeah, I liked him. He, um, I guess out of necessity, just based on everyone else in this group of samurais, he was like the calm, level-headed one mm-hmm. who was like very, very skilled and like everyone knew not to cross him. Like, he seemed very wise, but also just, like, effective. He seemed to be kind of the moral compass of the group as well. While other people are very, like, stoic, Mm -hmm. he was the only one that seemed to take that stoicism to the next level into, like, nobility, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he seemed like someone that you would respect even if you didn't really know them. Yeah. Like, he kind of called for respect just based on who he was he has a good mix of both bravery but humility as well which Mm. you don't see with your (laughs) kakuchios and the introduction to him is a great setup for his character because we see him rescuing a a child from a thief Mm -hmm. and to do that he shaves his head and Haircuts, I talked to you a little bit about it, but haircuts are very, very important in uh, this time in Japan. So shaving your head as a samurai, it means either you are going to be a priest and you're quitting that life or you've been shamed and you're going to kill yourself. Right. Those, that's pretty much it. You don't cut off your hair. You're not a samurai if you don't have the hair. Right. So him doing that to save this child that he just stumbles upon sets up who he's going to be through the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. He's very self-sacrificing. And although he adheres to what we might think of as the more noble aspects of samurai culture, he's not so stringently adherent that he puts honor and things like that and the um, and the appearances of honor above actually saving a life. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of this transitionary figure, and we'll probably talk about it a bit more later, but this is a transitionary period in in Japan. This is towards the end of the samurai era. Mm-hmm. We are at probably like 150 years of civil war, and not civil war in the sense that there's two sides and they're fighting, but all of these different groups are struggling for power. There isn't as much unified power, and because the fighting has gone on for so long, the country's in a, in a bad place. Mm-hmm. People are starving. The characters we see here aren't technically samurai. They'd be ronin because they are masterless samurai. Right. And They're like swords for hire. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when we start blurring the line between samurai and bandit because that's probably what a lot of those bandits were. Mm. They are unemployed samurai or ronin. And Ronan, outside of being like the most popular name for five-year-old boys, everyone's named Ronan. So many. Yeah. I work with kids a lot, so many Ronans. But besides being that, it's 
not the best thing. I don't want to say it's shameful, but you're only a ronin if you've been disgraced and had to leave, or if your daimyo, your master has been killed, and now you're like, well, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. And this is a point where there are many of them because there is so much war, people are dying, and there's this kind of wandering class of former samurai mm-hmm. who are looking for something to do. Okay, that's what I was wondering about because I feel like I remember in one of the f- times we've gone to a museum that have samurai uniforms, outfits, armor. Probably you're thinking, are you thinking hard stuff? Yeah. Then armor, yeah. Um. And I was like, isn't it like an army thing? Like, don't they serve someone? Yeah. And that's why. Yeah. So again, I'm no expert in this at all. But my understanding is that's why none of these guys have armor. Right. You would have your clan's armor. Mm -hmm. And some people do have their own clan. Like if you were a noble family and you could be a samurai of your own clan. But mostly you'd be a part of a daimyo who is like a a leader. Mm Mm-hmm a military leader or a from somebody from an established family and you would wear the armor of that clan. Right. And none of these guys have any armor because they are not with any clan. Mhm. Okay. So that's that's something that I was confused about and yeah. I didn't want to ask you during the movie because movie time. Movie time. Um and I didn't want to miss anything cuz I had to read all the subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> And later on, we see that the farmers have some samurai armor that they've, we don't know. Did they take it from bandits they killed or quite possibly they took it from samurai they killed? Mm. So there is a lot of blurring of lines of who the good and the bad are in this one. True. Yeah, I agree with that. And maybe one other character that I liked a lot was Kyuzo, who is kind of the the stoic one, who Mm -hmm. is a master swordsmith. And I like the introduction to him. And he's saying like, oh, no, don't fight me. I'll just kill you. And then the guy fights him and then he kills him. And he's like, oh, that's it. Is he the one chopping wood? No. Okay. He's maybe my favorite, but he's the one whose name I always forget. Oh. Well, so I guess he's not my favorite. Because <laughs> it's Kyuzo and then Gorobe and Shichiroji, which is my favorite one to say, but not my favorite character. Mm-hmm. But Kyuzo is fun because he is just so stoic and Mm -hmm. deadpan and you're like is he a bad guy is he a good guy he just is a samurai he just fights you point him in a direction Mm -hmm. he's gonna go fight yeah i liked him i like that sequence when they're like oh they have a uh they have a bunch of rifles we need to go get them and someone says okay i'll go get him and they're like no no you won't you won't you will not succeed i'll go do it and then he comes back the next day and just says like here's the rifle i killed three of them good night and just goes to sleep (laughs) That's a badass dude. I also feel like he deserved that sleep. Yeah. He's out all night. And I loved when Katsushiro then says, that's when he says, like, you are a magnificent person. (laughs) And he just kind of, like, smiles to himself. He doesn't want to get, like, too excited about it. But he's like, he's happy with that. And then he goes to sleep. Yeah, exactly. There are, of course, other characters, but we're not going to spend so much time going over them. Maybe they'll just come up as we talk. Yeah, or this will be... A three-hour podcast. <laughs> yeah. Three hours and 27 minutes. I think that's a pretty good time if it's used well. Yeah. Like this movie was. It was used okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about some of the visual aspects of this. It is much trickier when you're reading to really appreciate the visuals of a movie. It is. So I liked 
like we usually do. We usually play whatever we're talking about right before we start recording just to kind of refresh ourselves. And this one, this time was nice because I just like didn't read any of the subtitles and just looked at the scenes Mm -hmm. and it kind of helped because, yeah, I feel like I missed a bunch of it because I was trying to read. There are so many visual things that I missed. And when we were just kind of going over things now, I think I said to you, like, well, this movie is way better looking than I realized. <laughs> There's so much cool camera work in this. I just wish it was in color. The first thing that struck me about the visuals in this movie is how layered everything is. Mm-hmm. Well, we often get a group of seven people in a shot. And if you were to say, how do we film all seven of these people in one shot? I would say, oh, you get a wide angle lens. And you get them all in there. Mm -hmm. And that's what most people would do. But Kurosawa was like, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. We are going to put them in layers. And usually there are about three layers of interesting things in almost every shot of this movie. And that's what really impressed me about this. Because I just, I don't see anything like that. Even today, I do not see people doing that. I did enjoy some of those big shots where you can see like the whole town, for instance. And Mm -hmm. you can see that there's like something going on in the back and there's something going on to the right and there's something going on to the left. And then there's the main scene. There's so many things happening in every shot. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, I think maybe the very first shot of the movie we get this very high angle and we get to see this town or village, 10 houses essentially, mm-hmm. down below. And we are up on like on a hill or mountaintop or whatever it is. And then the bandits all ride into that scene. So we have the bandits and then the, the crest of the hill and then the village below and everything is in focus. And that is not easy to do. But what he would have to do and how this is done is he is probably very, very far away from all of this Mm -hmm. and shooting with a very long lens. And when I say long, I mean uh, something that we would consider a zoom, like very close up, Mm -hmm. but from very far away. And what this does is it compresses things together. So rather than blurring out all of the village stuff, it keeps that sharp, but manages to keep things sharp in the foreground as well. Mm -hmm. So he's probably like 100 feet away, or the camera is. Oh. That's how you do this. And then to get it at that angle, I don't even know how you do that, especially in 1954. They're not putting a drone up there or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. So then you have that, and then that's combined with these bandits looking down on the village. So Mm -hmm. then we get that high angle and that always uh, depicts who's in power. So the village has no power in this because we're looking down upon Mm -hmm. them. And the, I believe the bandits ride into the scene. They have all this. We see the village they're talking about and they ride out. And then we see one of the villagers pop up. So he always has so much movement in every shot. And even if there's a shot of people who are just sitting there, he'll at least have like the rain in the background or something. Mm -hmm. There is almost no straight up stillness in this. And then when there is, it's because it means something. Right. And it draws your attention to it that much more. I think it then switches from that and we see the village. And rather than just cutting to the people of the village, he cuts a little closer to the village, a little closer, and a little closer, and a little closer. So it's not a zoom going in, but it's a bunch of shots, and it's kind of increasing the the intimacy. 
And it's giving us context for everything. Mm -hmm. He always starts out there and then punches in in steps. I know we were talking about, um, I think it was Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, (laughs) which is often compared to this, of course. Oh, yeah, all the time. And we were in one room and we're just like, I don't know which part of this room we're in. It doesn't make any sense. And this has a village. I feel like I could draw a map of this village because he gives you such good spatial awareness with Mm -hmm. the way he shoots things. Yeah, and you get lots of really wide shots of the village. And then we don't just go from a wide to a house. Mm -hmm. We punch in in steps. So you see where we are going. Mm -hmm. And then when we do get that group of villagers, they move as one almost. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really interesting work when groups are moving around. So then when they're all doing the same thing, in this case, he's using a lot of levels because they're all really low down to the ground. Mm-hmm. And then when one person stands up, it's it's all the more powerful. It's not a bunch of people milling around. It's one person standing up and everyone kneeling below. And I think there's a woman in this who's even being dragged down by her children. Mm-hmm. So when she stands up, the group is essentially pulling her down and it's kind of making us think that... Anyone whose voice or ideas are separate are lifted up, but then they're pulled back into this group. The right. despair this group has is is physically evident. It is physically pulling all of these people down to the ground. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite like expressionism where the sets would would morph depending on people's moods. But the movement in this always seems to go with the moods that the people have with the ideas that Kurosawa is trying to get across. And that's something I didn't realize the first time, but just watching it now and not reading the subtitles because now I know the story, right. you can see all of those things that much more. Yeah, I do feel like if it didn't have subtitles and maybe like dubbing isn't always good, but like if it was dubbed, I would have appreciated the visuals a little bit more. Yeah, it is tricky. I think then that one character actually has some lines, and for the first time, we're not shooting it on a really long telephoto, but it's probably on something like a 35, which is a, like a, a standard type of lens. Oh, okay. And that causes more separation. So those are used very effectively when he wants to create uh, some sort of intimacy with that character. We are now hearing his voice, his ideas, and he's kind of talking to us. Mm -hmm. And we're connecting with him because he's no longer in the front and us seeing everyone behind him. For the first time, we're getting some sort of separation. So that makes me like pay attention to this all the more. It's not about the big group and the background and what's going to happen there. It's about him. Okay. Then there's all sorts of little fun things he does, which... I only notice now, so I haven't really been able to synthesize why, but he still does them. He often cuts on movement, meaning the camera will be moving and then he cuts and then it picks up somewhere else. So it just creates more fluidity to it. That's really interesting. I didn't actually notice that he was doing that, but now that you mention it, it's true. Also, I didn't notice how much the camera moves. I think of a movie from the 50s, you're going to have a static camera because Mm -hmm. that's kind of the technological limitations. And cameras were like the size of a house. (laughs) (laughs) So when I watched it now without reading, this camera is moving all over the place. And his movements would have a beginning and a middle and an end. It's not just here's a camera moving left to right. Mm -hmm. It would follow a character in, the character would do one thing, 
And we'd also see the background and then that character would leave a different way and the camera would follow through all of this, which I did not even notice the first time through. Huh. Yeah. Also, a weird thing. I don't know what it means. All the good guys move left to right and all the bad guys move right to left. Wow, you notice a lot of things because (laughs) I would not have picked up on that. There's a few instances where it's different, like when the old woman comes back and she's going to murder that guy. Oh, right. She moves the way usually the bad guys move. But maybe that's to say that like this is brutal. This is not a a good thing. This is not something to be celebrated, even though it may be a necessity. Because she's avenging. Yeah. Right. She should be an Avenger. I'd like to see her in an Avengers movie. Yeah. That would be hilarious. old woman who wants to die, but also kill. Like a pointy rake. Yeah. Did you have any other questions about like the context of this world at all? I know you had some, but did we talk about them already? Um, like I could answer them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, the first thing I wrote down was the haircut. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. So we talked about it, but yeah. not on the podcast. Yeah. I don't know exactly what it's about, but it is a status thing. Okay. It's that the farmers would have that haircut and people are just very locked into what their status is. Right. For it's instance, just it how was, you look if you're a farmer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was straight up illegal for a samurai to do farming and likewise for a farmer to do samurai work. Oh. So that's why when the samurai would if become ronin or unemployed Mm -hmm. they couldn't just like go be a farmer right that is not a thing you can do you are a samurai you will be a samurai so Mm -hmm. your options are to just be a a mercenary or to be a bandit or to starve wow that's uh that's pretty grim yeah um yeah oh man i was like is this like a movie choice or is this historical because if it's a movie choice curacao is a jerk (laughs) (laughs) he just wants he's like you know what i think this would be funny i just want to shave like 50 people's heads but only the top So I know very little about it, but I do trust Kurosawa because he is a stickler for details. I hear he had a book of the 101 village members, and he wrote a backstory for all of them. Oh, wow. And he was like, you better know your story because I I know your story. (laughs) I appreciate that. I enjoy um, backstory, and that was one of the best parts about doing community theater was being like an ensemble member and then getting like a... A backstory for yourself and then um like we got so hooked on our backstories that we talked about them like in the dressing room it was great um and then i just really liked the samurai montage and i'm sure we can talk about that when we talk about the plot but i just like i love a good montage and it is really i noticed like a precursor for the getting the band back together kind of do you mean things. when they're finding the people yeah yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was like a super fun. You really get to see their uh, like personalities, even though there isn't like a huge amount of dialogue. So you're saying the time was well spent and there's not really much to cut. No, there, there's a lot to <laughs> cut still. Um, but I, I think that is very true. Like I joke around, but I think that is a very good use of the time because when we get to these characters fighting and dying, mm-hmm. I know who they are. Exactly. It's not just some guy. Yeah, you get like a really good idea of their like personalities and their like honor. And, and had we been kinda... watching it rather than reading it, yeah. we'd be even more into that because exactly. we'd see their faces yeah. more. I, for instance, there's two that I kept mixing up. 
Yeah. Because I wasn't watching their faces when they're speaking. I was reading. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I struggle with that too. And that's why I can't watch anything with subtitles on that doesn't need subtitles because I just read and then I miss absolutely everything else. I'm the same way. And just to give a little context of the world of when this movie came out. So this is a 54. This is only, I think, one, maybe two years after the Americans stopped censoring Japanese film. Oh. They were occupying Japan, of course, after World War II. I, I don't have to explain atomic bombs, right? Everyone knows that? Yeah, we know what that is. <laughs> yeah, but well, I feel like I some do. people are like, uh, just in case you didn't know, uh, the U.S. dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. Yeah. Go look into that. Go look into World War II. It's a whole thing. They literally <laughs> made parts of Japan unlivable. So they were also controlling the all art. Japanese life was changed and it's just not just the bomb it was as part of their surrender they could no longer have an emperor there are all sorts of concessions that legitimately changed their day-to-day life Mm -hmm. so movies could not exist unless it passed through an american censorship board right so lots of um nationalistic or what they consider nationalistic things like pride in samurai stories Mm -hmm. those don't go through as easily and especially things that kurosawa was doing because he's he has a little bit of criticism Mm -hmm. to um to what he's doing so that's when this is coming out and this is some stuff that i was just thinking about now but maybe that is uh it's it sounds like the worst idea for me to be like here's how japanese society has changed (laughs) i've spent like a month in japan in my whole life before the movie takes place samurai were a source of nobility and honor and pride then that eventually becomes you could argue becomes corrupted but then eventually goes away then the military and that nationalistic pride becomes Mm -hmm. the takes over and you can look at the invasions in Korea before or going into World War II. And then that ends poorly. And it ends not just poorly, but in surrender. And in surrender, if you're going back to like old samurai times, like that's that's the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. You don't surrender. You kill yourself before you surrender. Right. And of course, that takes place in the military a lot, too. There were a lot of suicides after the, the, after the surrender or just before. And now their life is being kind of dictated by what the Americans are allowing. And this is when we see an increase in crime. This is when like the Yakuza, the mafia and stuff that starts rising because those old systems of honor don't exist anymore Mm -hmm. and are in fact kind of illegal. So there is a big change. And that is the time that this movie is coming out. When there is rampant crime, there's disillusion with what people had believed their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And at first I was going to say like, well, this movie doesn't really comment on that. Uh, 1954 is almost also famous for Godzilla. That came up then. Oh. That comments on it. Have you seen the original Godzilla? No. It is a parable about uh, nuclear war. Oh. That's what Godzilla is. So if you watch it in uh, the Western world, we're like, woo, fun, monsters. If you go watch it in a theater in Japan, it's, it's serious because, mm. like, this is about the atomic bomb. Oh, okay. I just knew it as, like, a monster movie. Monster created by the atomic bomb. Whoa. Whoa, man. The monster, perhaps, is the atomic bomb. Mm. War is the monster. War is the monster. But now looking at this movie, I also will admit I forgot 
how I started this whole idea. <laughs> but I do think that this movie is commenting on on that. It is about a transitionary time and it is being made in a different transitionary time. Mm-hmm. It's the end of one thing that so many people had pride in and now are seeing maybe that wasn't the best thing to have pride in <laughs> and they're they're coming to terms with that. So mm-hmm. I think this movie, as much as it is a straightforward action movie, I think there's a lot of postmodern ideas. Mm-hmm. And postmodernism isn't just like weird for the sake of being weird like it is a lot of the time, but it is a commentary on more established ideas. And it's weird to think of like something in the 50s already being doing commentary on earlier action movies, but I think that's what this is doing. Because we already have a history of many decades of samurai films in japan Mm -hmm. kurosawa has clearly seen decades of western films from america and he is taking his own worldview and what's happening around him and possibly what's happening at the the time the movie takes place all of this upheaval and disillusionment and putting that into it as well because i think this is a much sadder movie Mm -hmm. than you would expect like the, the the way the violence is handled this movie uses slow motion when somebody dies. Yeah. Not when someone is like punching a bad guy or when yeah, they're doing a victory. Epic. Yeah. It's like post. It's when someone is just falling to the ground and kind of bouncing once. Right. That's when they use the slow motion in this. And to me, that makes me think that they are drawing attention to the brutality or perhaps even the futility mm-hmm. of of this fighting of this violence that was something that i had to get used to uh watching this movie was how there's like such a big pause in between like the final blow and the person hitting the ground because of the slow motion so there's the slow motion and also that's just a stylistic thing of Japanese movies. <laughs> if you watch like I love 70s uh, Japanese movies and like your Lady Snowbloods and mm-hmm. Lone Wolf and Cub, that's a thing like you see someone cut through someone and then they stand and maybe they're already sheathing their sword and then the body goes down. Uh, it's also just kind of cool. And yeah, I can see but here cool. it is done I think to not to be cool but to rather show the brutality of this violence and to give time to this person whose life has ended. Mm -hmm. It's not just an Avengers movie where people are dying all over the place and like, whatever, it was some sort of robot bug. It doesn't matter. In this one, everyone kind of matters. The bandits, maybe not as much because they are just being like crossed off, literally crossed off a list. Mm -hmm. But when one of these people whose names we know dies it gives time for you to feel it. And also some of the time for people who we don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. Their death has weight to it. Yeah. Which you usually wouldn't get in a movie where, what, 42 people die. Yeah. Yeah, I did like that idea of giving weight to the death or like giving a moment for mm-hmm. you to like fully experience the fact that they've died. Yeah. Because like in your Avengers movie, we're really ragging on the Avengers. <laughs> we usually do because it's something that most people have seen. So yes. it's easy. Yeah. But like in an Avengers movie, it's like, boom, they're dead. Boom, they're dead. Civilian dead. 10 dead. And it's just like, you just move on. Well, in an Avengers movie, like a building will fall down. You never hear about it no. again. And I'm always like, there were probably hundreds of people in there. How many people died? the middle of the work day. Yeah. <laughs> that building was full. But yeah, I um, I did appreciate the kind of 
moment given to everyone who dies. And also there's that instance where before like the the full on attack they do that kind of survey mission mm-hmm. and they go out and one of the samurai dies. Yeah. The guy who I like a lot but whose name I can never remember. He's kind of like the funny guy. Yeah. And he dies and having that happen this early shows you that this isn't one of those old samurai movies. Mm-hmm. This isn't a perfect noble invincible person. They they can die. Anyone can die at any time. And when it's set up that early, you're I don't know if you're ready for it, but you you know you are in a world where any one of these beloved characters can die. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most of them do. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of death in this movie, but I think it's treated well. And then on that note, one of, I think, the best scenes in the movie is close to the end when uh, Katsushiro, he is ready to fight some more. And I think it must be Kembei who says, look, it's done. They're all dead. And you'd think in a movie like this, they they just saved the day. So mm-hmm. this is when everyone would get together and they cheer. But he drops to his knees and screams in anguish. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just, it's brutal. It's heartbreaking. It is, yeah. Because he, yeah. he has learned what it is to be a samurai. And it's not to just go out and be noble. It is sometimes to be brutal and to experience this violence mm-hmm. and to see this like great loss of life. And he's not ready for that. Right. In fact, earlier in the movie, when he sees Kyuzo uh, kill that guy, mm-hmm. I didn't notice this before because I was reading, but his eyes water up. Oh, wow. Right at the beginning, when he sees someone die, he's like, he's not ready he's for affected. that. He's affected. He thinks that it's going to be all of these great things. So maybe Kyuzo is kind of the um, the audience of the past. They're ready to see all of these noble, brave things that mm-hmm. are just happy and there's no downside. And then he sees the reality of it. And it, it's, it's not pretty. Right. So that kind of idea is what makes me think that Kurosawa maybe is linking post-war Japan with that period where mm-hmm. the, the samurai are kind of going away. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't know if any of this makes sense. I was thinking about it just today, so it's kind <laughs> of in my head, but it doesn't really make sense. No, you're making some good points. And um, this is one of those movies where I feel like you notice a lot more things than I do. Um, so it's kind of fun to have just watched it and then have you point out a bunch of stuff. So if I'm not talking as much, it's because I'm like thinking about the movie and I'm like, yeah, yeah. I did not expect to talk about anything about 1950s Japan. But then when I thought about it, it's like, oh, so much of this makes sense. Yeah. Like like the presence of guns in this movie. That seems incongruous. Yeah. That there's a samurai movie and then, wait a minute, that guy has a gun? In like the 1500s. It is uh, factually correct. Is it? Okay. Yes, for sure. It's like one of those time things mm-hmm. when I said like, oh, yeah, Picasso could have seen Star Wars. You're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. We don't realize certain things overlap. And yeah. samurai going with guns, I think it's more than just the time period. Mm-hmm. I think it is like samurai we think of mostly from movies. We mm-hmm. think of as just swords and it's nobility and they don't have like like guns. That's modern and it's dirty. It's not the same kind of thing, <laughs> right? right? But this movie is, of course, saying, like, you know, samurai aren't so great either. Mm-hmm. And then having the gun in there, it's almost, like, metaphorical. Yeah. Because, of course, it's it's accurate to the time, but it's also a, a symbol of things to come. Mm-hmm. Samurai and their traditions are on the way out and something new is coming. 
And that's that's death through technology. And this movie, of course, was made just after the the bombings in Japan. So the idea of technology coming through and killing Mm -hmm. must be at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Oh, yeah, no kidding. That's bleak. Yeah. This movie, it's a straight up action movie. Also kind of bleak. Kind of bleak. Wow. No, that's like really interesting because I feel like you could take that idea and make it in a lot of different countries in the world. Very true. Like you could transfer that to the US. You could transfer that to like Mexico. You could transfer that to like pretty much anywhere in the world that has had like an influx of technology or civil war. And then all of a sudden you're in this samurai movie. Yeah. Without the samurai, with insert whatever culturally appropriate thing. <laughs> yeah, but all of these themes do seem quite universal. Yes. Okay, well now now that we're going on that, now I think I'm into something. <laughs> okay. So then we were already talking about that both the time of the movie and the 50s are a time where uh, Japan is in flux and there's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty in, in the roles people have, in mm-hmm. people's self-identity. And I think the roles of this movie are very interesting because it's a time where there are, there is distinct social stratification. Mm-hmm. There is, it's illegal, right? For you to go harvest wheat if you're a samurai. Like that's right. not what you do. That's farmer's work. There's you're like above that. serious laws. Yeah. Stay in your lane. <laughs> Although, of course, we see uh, Kikuchio harvesting grain right. because he was a farmer. He is a pretend samurai essentially he's a fraud and if he were near someone who had any sort of authority i'm sure he would be probably like put to death or something yeah you can see he has like almost like a gleeful moment harvesting with the farmers yeah and you kind of get the sense that he like missed it yeah that's why going back to his roots i'm also glad was that a pun that was good (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't but yes it was (laughs) Yeah, he's such a good link between those two worlds. Yeah. And we get a lot of that. Or even not a lot of that. We get a lot of blurring of those lines. Mm-hmm. Like the link between the bandits and samurai. Because first, the farmers are scared of both of them. Yeah. When the samurai first come, they all go into hiding. Mm-hmm. And they go to seek out the samurai, but they also fear them. They're presented as being equally noble and brave, uh, just as they are treacherous. Mm-hmm. And the farmers are similar because Kikuchio has that big speech of like, oh, they're hiding something. You don't know how farmers are. Yeah. They're they're all liars. They're all cheats. You don't know. And you're like, where's this coming from? And then later yeah. on, they were hiding things. Yeah. They totally were. He was right. And he knows because he that's the world he came from. Yeah, it's really interesting how, because you're like, well, th- this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And yeah. then they were. They were hiding samurai gear. They were hiding food. They were hiding sake. It's like everything was being hidden. Yeah, because we learned <laughs> he does know. But when that scene with the baby, he said, like, this is me. This is what happened to me. Right. As he's carrying this baby whose family was just murdered. So we presume that his family was killed, but we don't know. Was mm-hmm. it samurai or was it bandits? Or does it matter? No. There was some kind of traumatic event. And this all like opposes that traditional view of samurai that mm-hmm. we have. I know this can be the um, main way into samurai movies for a lot of people. But when you really look at it, this is a, this is a postmodern samurai movie. This is 
Unforgiven. This isn't The Searchers. And if you don't know, Searchers, it's like, yay, cowboys. Oh, no, actually, you know what? There's a lot of downside in that one, too. Because that's a later period. (laughs) If I knew my Westerns better, put a good um, analogy in here. Insert analogy here. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But this isn't samurai are the greatest, they're invincible, they're noble. This is showing that everybody is kind of bad. And most people are kind of good. This is a gray area movie. Wow. Wow, man. And then at the end, everyone just kind of goes back to their job. Yeah. The farmers are like, all right, well, there's work to do. We are farmers. This is what we do. Yeah. That was what was interesting was it was just like, okay, war is over. Let's go back to work. And they don't, they're not mobbing the samurai and going, thank you, thank you. They're like, okay, your job's done. We're not feeding you anymore. Beat it. Yeah. And they just leave. That was that was funny. I liked that. They were just like, hit the road. <laughs> I, I might not use the word funny. I thought it was super sad. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Like they had a job to do and they did yeah. it. And now they have no job again. There's no place for them. Yeah. And that's sad. And uh, Katsushiro clearly, I think, wants to stay Washino. Mm-hmm. But she just walks right by. Yeah. That was brutal. That is brutal. So then the samurai just, I guess, leave. The three of them that are left. Mm -hmm. They come as seven, four die, and they don't really even get so much as much of a thank you. It's a sad ending. It is. The whole ending was was very sad and very beautifully shot in that one sequence where we can see... I can't remember if it starts up on the graves and then opens up to see the people in front or vice versa, but it's another one of those deep focus, long lens mm-hmm. shots where you get to see all of these layers and you get to see all of the layers of the story kind of presented for you there. And it is interesting that it is called Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. but they're not technically samurai. They're ronin at this point, so they don't have any master. They're not following anything outside of their own personal discipline Mm -hmm. or maybe like that bushido code which is like the way of the warrior and people now love to be like oh yeah i'm like that i'm so cool but (laughs) are people like that it's like people who read um sun tzu art of war or machiavelli then they're like yeah that changed my life i was like "Eh, are you really a warrior (laughs) do you want to live the warrior's life i don't think you do yeah what was i actually i don't remember (laughs) oh so now (laughs) now though they only have their own code right whatever they choose to because all their society is falling apart around Uh them they don't have anyone leading them so then maybe I'm I'm probably reaching way too much now. They're, the title being Seven Samurai, they have, in this act of altruism, they're, they're sacrificing for these farmers for no other reason than because the farmers need it. They're not getting anything from this. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is what has redeemed them. That is what has made them samurai. That is what has given them a purpose again. Right. Hmm. So they have found that nobility, but they have found it within themselves. It's saying, like, you're not going to get it from other people. Right. You have to kind of build that for yourself. And like, if we're really reaching, maybe that's um, Kurosawa saying that to this new generation, this post-war generation. Like, you're not going to follow those things anymore. Those things have been taken away from you. So maybe you have to make that. Mm-hmm. You have to find that nobility just as these seven samurai have. Whoa, man. Too much of a reach? No, I think that's a, that's a good amount of reaching. So do you have any final thoughts? 
Um, I can appreciate the historical significance of this film. Um, I liked the look of it, um, even though it could have been in color. And well, I don't, I don't think it could have. <laughs> well, I mean, even though it <laughs> financially, it couldn't have. No, no, no. <laughs> but I mean, like, even though it would have been better in sure, color. Yeah. There we go. Um, and uh, I think it was a very like transferable story, which is I think why I, like, I understand why it's been um, homaged. That's, that's how you say that, right? Sure, and straight up remade as well. Yeah, so I I can see that this would work in a lot of different scenarios with a lot of different kinds of characters, and I kind of appreciate that. I still am gonna stand by my. It was okay. <laughs> All right, all right. <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, because I was so rambly today, I feel like I've covered everything. So I don't know mm-hmm. if I have a final thought. Maybe I can try to summarize. And go. So this movie, well, I'm going to do it. I'm totally going to no, do I it. I love it. <laughs> this movie is about the end of eras in a lot of ways. We're now seeing that in the 1500s, samurai aren't just some noble group that are above everything. Uh, farmers aren't just some purely good, beleaguered people. Mm-hmm. These social classes that they've had in the past are crumbling around them. And this movie, of course, is being made in the early 50s after World War II, where so much of what Japan has held dear has now crumbled around them and been or been straight up taken away. Right. And they are ready for a rebirth as a country as a culture similar to the time that this movie is set and the take on samurai that they have is is different from like pretty much every samurai movie coming before it i'm i have a small sample size i haven't seen that many but that's my understanding from what i have seen mm-hmm. because especially us in the western world we get the movie idea of samurai that they are honorable they uphold good they're they're all benevolent, which not not the case. They're soldiers. Mm-hmm. And this movie is saying that like that preconceived notion that maybe even a lot of Japanese people have. Like maybe that's what we in the West have with knights. We think, oh, knights are just good. Right. No, they're they're hired murderers, just yeah. like a lot of people are. But maybe this movie and how they're depicting samurai as being neither entirely good nor entirely evil. Mm-hmm. I would say that the seven that we get in this are good. Yeah. But perhaps all of this is a commentary coming out of World War II that things that they had talked about in the past as being for honor or for being the greater good of society, which then was joining in on the Axis side, mm-hmm. um, invading China and Korea. All of those things that were talked about in great esteem and thought about as bringing honor to the country, maybe we were wrong. Mm. Maybe all of those things aren't as great as we thought. Maybe that's what Kurosawa is saying. Because he, you can't be too outspoken, but I, from what I've read about him, he wasn't a fan of all of that stuff. (laughs) So perhaps what he is saying is just as we are now being forced to change our way of thinking after the war, these people were doing that with the samurai. Right. But the movie is still Seven Samurai, not the Seven Ronin. So perhaps what he is saying then is just as they, sure, neither good nor bad or perhaps misguided or there was a a lot of brutality and violence, 
these seven brought back some of that nobility. Right. They brought back what they should be, that like they altruism. Were the, able to earn back the title samurai. Yes. Yeah. And perhaps that's a direction for we now in the 50s as this new Japanese generation, mm-hmm. we can do that too. We can grasp on to the good parts of what drove us to these bad things. Right. We can grasp on to those ideas of um, maybe even pride, but nobility and bravery. And you know what? We don't have to go invade other people to do it. <laughs> just uh, just to cultivate that within oneself, just as they have done. Perhaps it's not about the blind loyalty, because these people, these seven, are not loyal to anyone other than themselves and their own personal code. So perhaps what makes samurai so great wasn't that loyalty to the daimyo, but rather the nobility that they cultivated within themselves. And that can be a way to kind of um, rationalize what the country has gone through. That you had believed in something and then you're like, oh, wait, that thing I believed in was kind of genocide? <laughs> so we can still take what some of the guiding force was, but redirect it. Not just be blindly loyal to something, mm-hmm. but take those ideals and cultivate them within ourselves. Hmm. Is that something? Did that make any sense? Yeah, that made sense. All right. I like that. You sounded really smart. <laughs> oh, oh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I need to... Um, Take a breath. (laughs) Maybe organize my thoughts. And actually, I need to leave right away to go to hockey. (laughs) But before that, let's thank our second sponsor. And that is Park Power. Winter is coming and energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing. So now is a great time for listeners to look at their utility bills and ensure they are on the best plan. Albertans have a choice who they paid their utility bills to. Park Power is happy to provide free, no-obligations comparisons. If you decide to switch providers, it's easy. And you can feel good knowing that you're supporting a local business and helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills. To learn more, go to parkpower.ca. All right, well, that's it for us today. What uh, what season are we getting into next, Samantha? Christmas! <laughs> yes, I tried to hold so. off as much as I could, <laughs> but I've already lost the battle. We're in full Christmas mode over here already. <laughs> but next week, we will each have a few favorite Christmas songs. Yeah. And then Samantha's going to let us know what we're watching for the big Christmas watch the week after that. I'm very excited. I watched two Christmas movies yesterday. Oh, wow. Um, Whoa. And I listened to a bunch of Christmas music today because I was trying to get ready for next episode. It's mid-November. So I am ready. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's hope you are, but you will be because by the time that comes out, it'll actually be December. Yes, it will. All right. Well, we will see you next week or not see you. You will hear us next week and we'll be all Christmassy. Ho, ho, ho. Just like that. Goodbye, everyone. (laughs)